You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have Dr. Stasha Gomenek, a um, little bit of background on her. Uh, she, um, well, she has quite a varied background. Uh, I'll fast forward to the uh, more recent part. But, uh, she's been in Tyler, Texas since 2004, and she uh, published what's considered to be a very important article in 2012 uh, that talks about the global struggle with worsening sleep and linking that to you know lack of sun exposure. In 2016, another important article. Um, looking at the intestinal microbiome and uh, how that affects sleep, which is super interesting to me. And uh, she described a process for normalizing sleep and normalizing your gut bacteria called right sleep. So we're going to talk about that and, uh, you know, sleep and the microbiome and vitamin D and things like that. So, Stasha, thank you for coming. Richard, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, usually um, people that investigate certain things, unfortunately, uh, either them or someone they know has had a lot of problems with that thing that they investigate. So is that the case with you and sleep? Have you had sleep problems? or? Yes, actually, that's a very pertinent question because I have restless leg syndrome. And I really oh. think now that it's from Effexor that I started on 20 years ago as an antidepressant. And it wasn't at the time known to be linked, but now it is known to be linked. So I have my own sleep disorder. Um, I also slept very well as a younger person. So I, I've had both experiences, which it turns out is important. Mm. So if you've never slept normally, then you really don't know what it's like to sleep normally. So your level of expectation is a little bit lower than what it should be. So you're right. I have a sleep disorder and that has been pivotal to me because there, it's a weird experience to be feeling perfectly fine and then you get drowsy and then your leg jumps all over the place. It's, it's a very involuntary event and that is really one of the things that led me to understand that we tend to blame our patients when they don't sleep well. And that's crazy. It's a completely chemical, involuntary event, falling asleep. Right. So you, so in particular for you, you get tired. And as you're trying to fall asleep, all of a sudden your leg starts moving a lot? Yeah. It's a really oh. strange experience. And, it's, and also, because my experience with it is pretty unique, and I'm a neurologist, I also realize it's a Babinski. It's a it's a specific reflexive movement of the leg where the toe comes up, the knee comes up. And there's really only one extremely intelligent article about um, restless leg syndrome written by a guy from Ankara, Turkey, about 20 years ago in Medical Hypothesis that says, oh, this is an activation of an ancient walking nucleus in the brainstem. And as you transition from wake to sleep, that nu- nucleus is supposed to be suppressed. But it's not correctly suppressed, 
then during that phase, during that transition, it becomes activated and these weird things happen to you. So that, that personal experience had me thinking of these areas of the brainstem in a very different way than I would have, I guess. Well, we've, I've heard about, um, you know, like people like attacking their spouse in their sleep and we're sleepwalking. And I guess that may be similar, you know, where certain parts of your body are supposed to be quieted and turned off, but they're not. It's that's exactly true. Restless legs is its own little unique problem, but it is just, if you think of it in a generalized sense, there is, oh, we are supposed to get completely paralyzed. And when we don't, then there's a specific place that that's happening. And it also reflects a specific chemical footprint that isn't happening correctly. Is it um, just one leg or both legs? And are you, if I just had a thought, you know, do lefties have left restless legs and righties right? Or is there no correspondence? Another, another unique and interesting question. It doesn't appear to have to do with your handedness. But what's interesting about it is some weeks I'll have just the right leg, some weeks just the left leg. And most people with restless leg will have either one or the other or both and can be variable. But the other interesting thing is it appears to me that in my patients who've had a neurologic illness on one side, like MS that's stayed with one side of the body or a stroke on one side of the body, that that side of the body will act out more, not necessarily restless legs, but it will act out more, like you were mentioning, the things that you mentioned about what is called REM behavioral disorder, where you actually act out your dreams. There, there are aspects to neurologic illness or injury in the past that will lead to you acting out more on one side than the other. Oh, that's interesting. And then how does this transition to the microbiome for you? Did you find a solution by changing your diet? No, I came into that in a very odd way. So one, I'm very focused on sleep. That's what's most interesting to me. And I saw some of my patients get better on CPAP devices. I really thought that CPAP treatment or the the continuous positive pressure devices that we use for people who have sleep apnea didn't interest me because most of my patients were young, healthy females with headache. And they were said not to have this problem with sleep apnea. So one of my patients demanded a sleep study and she turned out to have sleep apnea and she wasn't overweight and she wasn't a middle-aged male. And because her headaches got better with wearing what I considered to be a torture device, I started to be more interested because I wanted my patients with headache to get better. So then I got interested in sleep in a generalized way. Then I started to do vitamin D, and that's a little bit of a story in itself. Then the vitamin D effect that really did make the sleep better, it waned in its effectiveness after about two years. And then I was stuck with a bunch of people, including myself, that had been on vitamin D for a while, and we all started to have new problems. And that led to an exploration of some B vitamins, in particular B5. And that was an experimental Good question here. Were you monitoring your levels of vitamin D or were any of your patients doing that? Absolutely. Was there a corresponding, you know, maybe the vitamin D level went too high at one point and maybe that caused problems? Yes. So vitamin D, too high and too low, both produce difficulty with sleeping and inappropriate movement during sleeping. And we can talk about that more at the end, but you have to do D levels and you have to be very careful with them. Um, 
I can go on about that, but I do you want me to go back about the, how the microbiome pulls into this? Yeah, I definitely want to cover the microbiome aspect. Go ahead. Okay, so I was thinking that vitamin D was going to be the key, and it really fit perfectly with when we moved inside and started to use sunscreen. And many things got better, but there were several things that didn't get better. And because irritable bowel syndrome showed up in our population starting in the early 80s, along with several other things. So the sleep disorder started then, IBS started then, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. They all started in the early 80s in a similar time frame. So because of that, I kind of thought, well, D is probably related to them. Well, the D didn't take the IBS away. I am not an expert in the GI tract. I'm a neurologist. So what I saw was the sleep got better and then got worse again. And by accident, I stumbled into this particular B vitamin and I gave my patients what was the recommended dose, which was 400 milligrams of pantothenic acid. And I got horrible restless legs all day and all night in response to that dose. My patients came back and said, I got so agitated, I I couldn't sleep, and I got all revved up during the day. So I had about 30 out of 40 people who said something that was completely different than what all of the all of the available books said, which was the right dose was 400, panathenic acid deficiency didn't exist because it was in every food. And that implied that one, this chemical B5 that I knew nothing about was extremely powerful. You take it and it makes you not able to sleep. Well, that's not where we want to be, but it also means that it does affect the sleep. So then I'm stumbling around. I'm interested in the sleep aspect. Okay, so one, there are no recommendations about what's the right dose. If this stuff messes up your sleep, then theoretically, if you find the right dose, it can make a huge difference in your sleep. And here's some other like obscure vitamin. Like I'm totally blown away by this whole idea that vitamins could have anything to do with sleep, frankly. So they would affect blood chemistry and a lot of processes. So why not? Yeah, exactly. It makes perfect sense. It's just that there are no quotes, except for B12. You know, there's a literature on B12. So the idea that B12 could affect your sleep is already there. But then, you know, the, the sleep industry is huge right now. And I'm stumbling around between, this is coming around 2009 to 2013 or so, where I've done the vitamin D. There's nobody writing about how to fix the sleep with vitamins. Okay, so... To you and I, that doesn't sound weird, but so here's the connection to the GI tract. As I'm reading about B5, which doesn't have much literature about it, I'm reading these review articles, and the review articles say, oh, thiamine has a GI tract source and a food source. Riboflavin has an intestinal bacteria source and a food source. So does biotin. So, well, uh, wait a minute. Every single one of the B vitamins has an intestinal bacterial source and a food source. Why won't any of these authors really step up and say, you know what, if we've lost our microbiome, could it be that we've actually lost all eight B vitamins, that the B vitamins were actually always coming from the microbiome? So that okay, I- so, um, so what are you able to, okay, so all the B vitamins essentially are, are metabolites of bacteria in our gut. Is that what you're saying? Well- what uh, I, I, this is presenting, the, the, the questions you asked is a logical question. How did you know that you brought back the microbiome? Everybody's looking at it from the p- 
poop sample point of view. So what happened to me was I was really looking for bringing the microbiome back so that the right source of B5 would provide whatever the right daily dose was of B5 to the brain so you would sleep normally. So my way of knowing that the microbiome was back is by the sleep correcting itself. That's not the way most people think of it. So I was not looking for a cure for the microbiome. I was looking for getting my patients sleeping better. I didn't have anybody that was writing about what's the right dose of B5 to sleep normally. So my thought was, oh, what if we've always gotten these bees from the belly? I know the belly screwed up too because everybody in my practice still has IBS. All we're doing is putting samples of bacteria down there. We're taking these freeze-dried poop samples. We're paying 60 bucks a month for probiotics. But what if those four species that we've always had down there when we had normal microbiome were really feeding each other bees? Maybe they were always the source of these eight bees. And oh, by the way, when you go back into the literature of how did we first distinguish what B vitamins were? I mean, the first question you should ask is why are they all bees? Well, they're all bees because they all came originally from bacteria. They were all bacterial growth factors and they were all isolated from a preparation. You can isolate yourself in the kitchen by just making bread. You put a baker's yeast and you put water and you let it sit there at a warm temperature for a long time. And that's what we use to make bread. You do the same thing with beer. And it turns out what you've got in there is D2 that's being made by the yeast. And you've got eight B vitamins that are being made by the bacteria. And it was that solution that they used to grow bacteria back in 1910, 1920, following Pasteur's lead in the late 1800s. And they began to realize that if you boiled the liquid, that only certain species of bacteria would grow. If you didn't boil it, then other things would grow. And they finally purified these eight chemicals out of that liquid. They realized that they were growth factors, that these were chemicals made by the bacteria. Some bacteria can make thiamine and can't make riboflavin. Some can make riboflavin and not thiamine. And the original reports of all of these chemicals were bacterial growth factors. Somewhere along the way, somebody lost track of the fact that, oh, if these are eight chemicals that humans and all other animals, actually all the way back to multicellular organisms, we all need them, but we can't make them, then it makes perfect sense. We can't make them because biology takes the shortcut. If your bugs in your belly are making these eight chemicals, then I don't need to make them. I just steal what the bacteria is making. No one has stepped forward to state that yet. There is another group that put a really cool article together in 2015, the year before I published mine. But ultimately, I know back in the 20s, somebody said, oh, well, these must be coming from the bacteria in our belly. So it's like we knew this stuff, but it got lost to our memory. And then over the last... 50 years, we've, we've stuck to this dogma, which is the vitamins come from the food. And it's not that somebody just made that up out of thin air. There really were deficiency states that, that occurred if you give just cornmeal, and that's all you eat for months on end, you develop pellagra. If you, but now, now we know the, the pathway, the root cause. So if your diet is such that the bacteria that makes you know, a certain B vitamin is in low concentration... 
that's why you'll have a deficiency. It's not necessarily it's missing in the food. It's just that exactly. the bacteria is not prevalent. Exactly. So there are two. So there there are two or three fields of literature within the GI tract and the vitamin literature that have kind of come together that make great sense to me. I just happened to step into this kind of by accident, not wanting to fix IBS, but it turns out you need not only, so here's what happened. So I'm giving B100, which means it's a all eight Bs, 100 milligrams or 100 micrograms of each. I'm giving that because by accident, because I'm the only thing I remember from medical school is if you give one B, you give all of them. And this is before I'm beginning to think about, oh, well, the microbiome always made eight. That's, and they're very, very, very biologically intertwined chemicals. They all come together. In fact, the, each bacteria may need a cofactor of one of these Bs to make their final B. So they're intertwined in their production in the GI tract. They're intertwined in our metabolism as well. So the basic, the, the, the most important dogma that's been forgotten is if you give one B, you should give all of eight. You should always give all eight. They rely on each other. So I'm giving. Yeah, but even, even within that though, you know, you shouldn't necessarily give them an equal amount. They're all different chemicals and they would have radically different jobs and potencies. So, I mean, is there an ideal ratio of the beans to each other? Perfect question. Here's what happens. I pick up B100 not because I'm smart, but because it happens to be there on the shelf. But that is, that's a human being. We've made up these fake measurements, micrograms, milligrams, and then we've put this bottle. What was the natural amount that's being made by this foursome of bacteria? That's the piece that I think is the pivotal piece that we need. If we miss the fact that these eight chemicals always came in a very important ratio to one another. And they came in that ratio as a normal part of having these four species in our belly. Then what you really want, what I really want to have a normal life is to have those four back. Now, by accident, I happened to pick up B100. It happened to be exactly the right dose. So remember, I took 400 milligrams of panathenic acid. I got terrible restless legs. But when I took B100, so I took away the extra 400 like in a day, my sleep became perfect. It was like weird. Now, what I was really doing is there are two things in the background. There's vitamin D, which is, it turns out is a bacterial growth factor as well. So what the bacteria wanted was enough D. So I'm making D on my skin when I go outside. I'm passing that D through my liver into my GI tract. I'm sharing my D with my bugs. So the bugs went bad for the first time as a pandemic around the world when the D went down. But just recovering the D and sending a lot of D down to the GI tract, which I had done for two years, did not bring the microbiome back. So now I've got D plus B100. And in three months, everybody's better. All the belly complaints are gone. But at the end of three months, the intestinal production is back and you're taking B100, and at the end of the third month, you better stop the additional supplement or your sleeplessness comes back. So your first question was, how do I know I've corrected the microbiome? I really did it as a roundabout supposition based on watching the sleep. Well, so there, have there been, um, have, have doctors looked at people, for instance, with IBD or Crohn's and profiled the levels, their biomarkers of all the Bs and Ds, et cetera, is there a signal 
any clear signal for people with these conditions? Maybe they're low in certain Bs or Ds or both of them? They're, every single person on the planet who has an autoimmune disease needs three things in order to develop that. One, we were never designed to be allergic to ourselves. That is a totally goofed up system. So every single animal on the planet has the same biology as we have, okay? Mammals, birds, reptiles, fish, their basic biology is the same. We were not designed to have autoimmune disease. That's number one. Number two, what you need to develop an autoimmune disease is both D wrong and the microbiome wrong and have a genetic tendency. So there are certain underlying genetic markers that we found. So not every, so let's say everyone around the world goes low D. I don't think anybody gets sick from just having a low D. It just makes you sleep more. It just means, oh, it's winter. I should sleep for 12 hours. It's only once your D, D has been low enough for a couple of years that you lose your microbiome that then you begin to develop diseases. But the most, one of the most common ones is autoimmunity of any kind. That includes allergy, asthma, frequent sinus infections because you're not able to protect yourself. So autoimmunity is just on top of a microbiome that's not just in your intestinal tract, but all over your skin. So the way we walked around in the world before antibiotics came, and some people could live to be 85 years old, is that our own microbiome on our skin, in our nose, in our ears, in our genital area, they make antibiotics. Antibiotic means kills other living things. So we have viruses, we have fungi, we have bacteria that grow all over us. Like we walk around in this little cloud of these bugs and the bugs protect us from other infections. So there are people who've never, like they live to be 85 years old and never had a bad infection that they needed antibiotics for. We know that all those things have happened, but we've lost we kind of lost memory of that because slowly over the last 40 years, it's become so common for human beings to be so sick. So I think that the microbiome is the major player. The thing that we missed was it's not just simply about sending down probiotics. It's really about recreating the environment that favored those four species over other ones. So, well, okay. Quick question here. I mean, from what I know, there's, hundreds, maybe even thousands of species and strains and all that. So when you say four, are you talking about general four, you know, the genera, yeah, or are you talking about species. specific strains? There are four specific species, general groups that we have that normal. So there's an article that summarizes this. It's a very short article. It's a three-page article about uh, The Economist. And it there is there are just piles of data about this. The problem is, if you get too immersed in the data about what we know about the genetics of these, uh, these bacteria, you get distracted. Okay, here's the bottom line. Before we moved inside, when we all lived outdoors, like every other animal that lives outdoors, we normally got four specific species spontaneously growing in our GI tract while we're breastfeeding. There's no probiotic. There's nothing coaching those bacteria to wind up there. It's always that same foursome. They're present in the baby, in a human baby's uh, small intestine and poop samples by the time they're three months old. It happens spontaneously. Our biology was self-sustaining for 75 to 85 years with these four species. 
we didn't have to toy around with them. We didn't know anything about them. That means the original state, we just got the right foursome. I think that means that we needed to be living outside and have a good substantial D level over 40 to keep them living inside us. But that happens spontaneously around the globe. So once we get that foursome, and it's important to note, there's a, there's a lot known about the genetic makeup of every single one of the 200 species that live inside us, but we haven't grown more than 2% of them in a Petri dish. That's probably because we don't know the requirements of the growth factors that they need, and we missed vitamin D as a bacterial growth factor. I think that there is plenty of information that suggests that D is a major growth factor for these four species. And when you lose that D to supply them, other species that don't need D replace them. Has there been a mapping of which particular group of, of, uh, of strains or species make which B vitamin and which D vitamin or which B at least? Great question. So the article I made mention of that was published in 2015 is a group out of um, West either Latvia or Finland, where they actually, they ask this question in a different way. So if you make the hypothesis, oh, that's interesting. We have these four basic large groups, species that are in our belly. And we know that certain species make certain B vitamins. We haven't grown them in a Petri dish, but you know what? We have the entire genetic makeup of every single one of those species. That means we can use the computer and say, the species A have the, gen- have the genetic makeup to make um, this particular enzyme that's needed to make thiamine. So we can still query what the computer stores and say, does this species have what it takes to make riboflavin? Does this species have what it takes to make biotin? Does this one here have what it takes to, to, to do this? So this group that was very good at this computer science paradigm had the hypothesis that the reason why we have these four species is because they are four symbiotic species that always exist together because when they exist together, they all thrive because they supply these eight chemicals back and forth. They asked using the computer whether or not each one of these four could make a single B or more than one, but needed a B from its neighbor. Then they went through a series of questions about things like what's the likelihood that this foursome will show up in pond water or a skin abscess or um, the soil. So they actually asked what's the likelihood of this foursome coming together as a group in other places and compared that in all other parts of places where bacteria show up compared to the GI tract and we're able to show that their hypothesis was correct, that these four, this foursome of species show up because they make at least one bee and they need at least one bee from their buddies. So it's the same conclusion. It's just, I think that's the very first article that actually published that in modern times. So again, have, have people with dysbiosis been characterized and are they missing or they have low prevalence of one of these four or you know, has, has this been corroborated another way? I don't has know the answer it? to that. I think, I think that uh, I think of it in a slightly different way. For instance, your, your earlier question about ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, I went off on the track of these are just autoimmune diseases. What I saw happen in my, in my clients was that it doesn't really matter what kind of autoimmune disease you have. You're 
as able to fix Crohn's and ulcerative colitis by just using D and B100 as you are able to cure MS. It doesn't really matter if you have an autoimmune disease that's directed towards the GI tract. What you need to do is get the microbiome back. That doesn't mean that your immune system is instantly corrected. Your immune system still takes months to years of perfect sleep every night to allow you to use these tools. So the the vitamins are just tools. They aren't what actually makes the immune system better. What makes the immune system better is having sleep into the deep sleep phases where we then flip into the programs that allow us to repair. So then we use these building blocks, the bees, all the other small charged ions, the iodine, selenium, zinc, copper. We use all these little tiny factors that are all building blocks when we get into deep sleep to repair the immune system. And then the immune system, because it's so closely tied to hormones, the immune system takes months to years to get better. But my patients with Crohn's and and ulcerative colitis, they get better just like everybody else. It doesn't take that long. So by looking... Can you do 16S? Are you doing whole genome sequencing to look at the potential gene expression of different bacteria? And then no, that would tell you. I think it's a big waste of time. Here's why. At the moment, what we have is a huge amount of data about genetics, but I can't use that genetics to make my patient better. So here's what I think will happen this concept that the D goes low and the microbiome fails is the basic underlying cause for everybody's failure. When, I, when everybody fails with the same mechanism, that doesn't mean we manifest the same disease. So when I fail because my D is low and then I lose my microbiome, I will manifest whatever disease is in my genetic makeup. So I'll get depression or I'll get Alzheimer's disease, whatever my mom and dad had. When we start to analyze the genetic tendencies, what we need back is we need the normal biology put back together. So It is my belief now, it's not like the stuff that we learned about genetics is not important. It is important. It's very important. But we have to have the basic functioning of the body back together before we're going to be able to use the special knowledge that we have about the genetics. So for instance, I I now think of the microbiome as being an organ of the body. That's the way the GI experts are writing about it. That means when you take D and B50 for three months, which is my protocol, and you bring the microbiome back. That's all it takes, really. It's pretty simple. You need a D over 40 and B50 for three months, and your microbiome is back. As long as you keep your D over 40 from then on, you won't lose them again. Once that organ is back in your body, that just means your liver fell out two years ago, and all these terrible things happened to you. Now you just put the liver back in. Now we just put the microbiome back in. We put this organ back into functioning It's not like everything in your body is going to rapidly fix itself. No, that organ is back working again. Then you need months to years of that organ doing its job to replete all the small charged ions, to get all the B vitamins back to be replaced. So one of the other dogmatic things we've said that was wrong is that you can't overdose on B vitamins because we pee out the excess. That is absolutely wrong. B12, I think that's correct. But B5 has body stores, B6 has body stores, thiamine has body stores. That means we are not only actually building our, this organ, but we're now producing these bees from the belly and we're repleting our stores. So we focused all this time on 
gee, what's my B6 level in my blood? And do I have some genetic tendency to need B6 in a different way? It's not that that information isn't important. It's really important. But you're trying to manipulate using that information in someone who's, who their liver just fell out. Their basic organ of the body has gone. So my thinking is that once we get that microbiome back and the D's back where it should be, then all the knowledge we've acquired about how to get replete the stores of iodine or copper or zinc or the bees, those are all going to be things that we'll then learn how to tweak individually based on a set of symptoms. It's a really different way of thinking about our biology than most of the functional. Go ahead. I've seen, you know, it's been reported widely that, for instance, 80 or 90 percent of the serotonin in our bodies is made by the microbiome in our guts. So who's making that? And thyroid hormone, T4 is converted to T3, quote unquote, in our gut. And I wonder what creature is doing this. Have you seen anything like that in the literature? It seems like our gut bacteria and our other bacteria are responsible for doing a whole lot, including, you know, working with the bees, producing them, but also these other substances. Right. Richard, you're really smart. And those are really good. Those are good questions. I'm not a GI expert. So the only thing that the only reason why I bothered to put this in a publication was that getting the microbiome back was really easy. Making the way I look at it, the way I, it kind of came back accidentally. And you asked me what my thinking was. My thinking is really about sleep. Now, having said all that, everything else you just mentioned, from my point of view, serotonin and our, the, the resting serotonin level is really important. It's very important to me. Maybe that means that when I went on a Fexor 20 years ago, it really meant that that's when my microbiome went bad. And then I went on this serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And now I, my sleep is all screwed up because I'm on that. So it's my view that we're going to learn a huge amount, even especially in neurology. I mean, there are articles right now saying that we have a microbiome that grows in our brain. I mean, that's mind boggling for someone who's practiced for the last 35 years where our brain's supposed to be sterile. So the good thing for me was, oh, I don't know anything about the microbiome, but I'm very focused on getting these B vitamins back. And you know what? There are probably a hundred other things that the microbiome does that helps our sleep that I have no idea about, that no one's focused on it yet. I guess I'm just going to ask some questions that seem to be obvious. Like, like again, you know, I had my thyroid taken out. So I take, you know, Synthroid T4, for instance. And again, I've read T4 gets converted to T3 in the gut. Well, I thought, well, where and by who? And then I couldn't find that. Yeah. You know, same thing with serotonin. It's like, it's just odd. But yeah, I think the microbiome, it's, you know, I'm realizing every single thing we eat, either before we eat it, it's worked on by bacteria, or after we eat it, it's worked on by bacteria. Exactly. I think that's, that's really, so there are two bodies of literature about diet, okay? I don't spend any time on my site about diet, not because it's not important, but because I'm reporting the things that were left out the things that are really important about sleep that no one's talking about elsewhere. But there are two big bodies of literature about the microbiome. One is probiotics. I think they're a total waste of time. But the second piece is what we're really doing is we eat and we are feeding our bacteria. So it's really, we feed our bacteria and then they feed us. They were a very important intermediary. So this, my point that they make eight B's is just one teeny little piece that they do. 
they also, I think, manage all the small charged ions. That's why I've been talking about them. Because in my patients, the, I wondered about iron deficiency anemia. I had some young males. They are menstruating. Why would they have an iron deficiency anemia? That didn't exist when I was in early practice. Now they're getting iron infusions. It wasn't the D that fixed that in my patients. It was getting the microbiome back. So like eight months after I, I get this B50 D mixture and their bugs are back, they come back and say, you know what? I was at my hematologist and he just said he wouldn't give me my iron infusion because my iron's okay. That implies that all of the testing that the functional specialists and the naturopaths are doing where they find XYZ selenium is low, manganese is low, iodine is low. These are all small charged ions. If every single animal on the planet has these little enzymes that use a copper ion, they just need one. And you just need one copper ion in the middle of this enzyme to do this big, important thing in our metabolism. There had to have been an organ in the body that manages that, that made sure we had enough of XYZ, and there are like 50 of them. We had to have enough of those that we did it right, but not too much. There was an organ in the body managing that. And I'm convinced now that it has to be the microbiome that's been the major player in that. Because these functional medicine doctors and the naturopaths are not making up stuff. They actually find real things and then they supply iodine. Well, the animals outdoors are not going to GNC and getting their iodine levels checked. We focused on toxins and on diet because those are the things that we've been able to figure out. But I think what we're going to understand is if I get my microbiome right, that might mean I can detoxify my mercury and my fillings more effectively. So that there were things that the microbiome was doing for us. This is particularly important in, for instance, immunizations. So if you go back to the 50s and 60s, when we're trying to keep people from dying of polio or diphtheria or measles, we're actually giving immunizations to a population that has a normal microbiome. They have good D levels and a normal microbiome. And now we have 30 years of studies of immunizing small children. And we have the effects of those immunizations and we see what happens. Now we move into 40 years of every kid who's born has the wrong microbiome. They therefore have the wrong immunology in their body. And then you're immunizing them and then their effects are different. I think that's just a different way to think about them. That's what I was going to ask you. So the, the existing paradigm is, you know, at best, look at your levels. If you're low on something, supplement or maybe take a medication. The new paradigm is, okay, look, your levels are out of whack. Instead of supplementing, how do you fix your microbiome, which will then correct those levels, which will then bring you back? Yeah, and it turns out it's pretty simple. You don't even have to know the levels. When you want to fix the microbiome, it's pretty simple for everyone. Now, the next piece, once you fix the microbiome, the next piece is what I want for every one of my clients is that they get to fix every single one of their medical problems. So there's two ways to look at this. There's, oh, would I like my children right at the time of their birth to have a normal microbiome going forward and keep that? That's one way. That's a prevention. That's a totally different way to think about it. On the other hand, for, for instance, Richard, for you, when you lost your thyroid, well, why did you lose your thyroid? You're not supposed to lose your thyroid. I know. I know. Papillary thyroid cancer. So that's, that's yeah. why the surgeon, the surgeon took it. Exactly. Now, there's a, there's a different aspect. Let me stay away from thyroid cancer for a moment. But it turns out that all the women that I was seeing with daily headache, they have a certain set of diseases. 
many of them are thyroid related. So these are young, healthy females. They shouldn't have anything wrong with them, in my view. They shouldn't have any pain. They have thyroid nodules, they have hyperthyroidism, and they have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and they have unexplained hypothyroidism. So it turns out that D is directly responsible for what the thyroid does. The D moves the thyroid up and down. This is how animals hibernate. So when the D goes low, the thyroid goes low, and all the cellular metabolism throughout the body allows that animal to lie in the ground for six months. There's a natural connection between D, their D receptors all over the pituitary. So it affects multiple other hormones. So with the exception of thyroid cancer, one of the fascinating things is, as I'm reading about D and the fact that it affects thyroid stimulating hormone levels, that means, oh, that's why Stephanie, who came in last month, said, you know, my doctor five years ago put me on thyroid hormone. And last year I came back to this other doctor and she said, I don't need to be on thyroid. Well, that happens all the time in my population. Well, why is that? Because they've forgotten or never paid attention to the fact that as the D goes up, like if you have your annual physical in October, your thyroid is okay. If you have your annual physical in May, your D is really low because it's you're about to go out in the sun, but you don't have any D now, and your thyroid follows the D. So there are aspects to many of the diseases that show up in young, healthy females that were attached to the D. Same thing for, for gallbladder disease. Now, that's a really different way to think about medical problems than the way I was trained. I really feel like most of medicine is still in this mindset of, oh, we're born and then we just get stuff. I mean, stuff just happens to us. Oh, they ascribe it to random mutation and things like that. Yeah, so we have a lot of genetics. What you and I are interested in is, well... If I have any relatives or if I was kind, if I had the luck to know a 75 year old individual who never went to the doctor, I want to be that person. How do I get to be that? The entire, I want longevity. I want normal health. I want to put my body back together and keep it functioning because it is absolutely not dependent on medical doctors. We've been on the planet for thousands and thousands of years, the dinosaurs have exactly the same biochemistry that we do. That means all of us animals were surviving for many, many, many years without medicine. That means I want to go back to functioning normally. From my point of view, that is all about sleep. Every single one of us wakes up in the morning and we've had all these repairs. We aren't aware of them because we are by definition unconscious during that repair phase. But we've actually done hundreds of things in our body so that we can wake up and look at ourselves in the mirror and, and look the same. We look the mm. same, but we've actually repaired a bunch of stuff. So right. I think core is all about making sure that we have every single building block that we need in the right dose to sleep normally every night. That would be nice, too. <laughs> so I think we focus. Your question is a really good one. We focus on these individual measurements of things. We really shouldn't be focusing on the individual members, uh, measurements of these things, missing the basic underlying repair mechanism. Like I can give you all these things that you're low in, but if I miss even one thing that the brain wants to sleep, you won't sleep yeah. and you won't get back to where you want to be. You know what? You know what the conversation should be at night? You know, what do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? 
I don't know. What do your microbes want to eat? Let's eat that. Yeah. I think that that literature about what we feed our microbes. See, see, from my point of view, the piece that's important to me, and the only reason why I spend all this time talking about it is it's been missed. I think once everybody has their D up and their microbiomes back, then we're building on the normal biology that was throughout the planet from the 1950s and before. So we had this amazing step forward in 1940s to the 1980s with antibiotics, with, with vaccinations. They really did accomplish amazing things. I was not seeing polio in my office. I didn't see kids dying of diphtheria. I didn't see them have... Well, you know, you know what would be really interesting is if you were able to develop a similar protocol for people that are about to take antibiotics so they just finished a course because, you know, that totally like freaking obliterates the microbiome. It so doesn't. recovering from that. It doesn't. It doesn't. That's a lie. Well, it's been shown to cause dysbiosis in a lot of studies I've read. No, they, they, they're, taking, they're taking a population that has an abnormal microbiome, and then they're giving them antibiotics, and then they're showing that they have an increased risk of H, you know, various things that are bad, like Clostridium difficile. So you've taken a, let's look at it a different way. So I have two pieces of information that suggest that the antibiotics are not to blame. First, we humans did not make up antibiotics. The bacteria did. We stole penicillin from the bacteria. So if you go back to the- Are you you talking about broad spectrum versus targeted made by certain bacteria for other bacteria? Yes, but just hang in there with me because you're thinking right. But the concept of antibiotics has actually been there for billions of years. The bacteria made chemicals that killed their competitors. They have actually been in our body making antibiotics to protect our skin, making antibiotics to protect our sinuses and the inside of our ears and our entire GI tract. They've been making them for a very, very long time. That means we are riddled with antibiotics that are being made. If you have the normal microbiome, you can actually live for years on end with no infection. Now, if we look at it another way and we say, oh, the whole population went to hell in the 1980s and we all have the wrong microbiome, and then all the studies about using antibiotics since the 1980s have been done on patients who have the wrong microbiome. They don't really have, their tissues are not as healthy as someone in the 1950s who had a normal microbiome, let's say, okay? So every, it's not that the studies are incorrect. They are correct. You know, you'll see, I, I, you know, I've had lots of patients who had Clostridium difficile and were dying in the hospital. And then they started to do these fecal transplants and they actually work. But it's slightly different question than, okay, once you've done right sleep, Dr. Gomenak's protocol, and you brought your, antibi- your um, microbiome back, what's going to happen if you have to take antibiotics? You just take them, you treat the infection and you stop them. And the bugs that will grow back right away, coming from your appendix, if you have one, because the appendix is really the the little library of all your colonies. They stay there. It's off to the side. It's out of, it's not, it's perpendicular to the rest of the tube for a reason. So you poop out everything and now you have your little colonies and they grow back. That means even when you get antibiotics, you will grow back the right foursome if your D is over 40. So I have yet to have one of my clients get into bad problems uh, using antibiotics. You get the right microbiome back. We also have a body of literature that's been between 1945 and 1985 
where whole populations were using antibiotics like crazy. Yes, it's true there are bacteria that are resistant to, to antibiotics. That's true. And we still have things like tuberculosis. You know, tuberculosis has been around for a long time. We haven't been able to get rid of it. It would be my claim that what has always helped the person heal from tuberculosis is not just our drugs. It is the normal immune system and the help of the normal microbiome in the respiratory tree, in the, in the GI tract that helped kill the tuberculosis. We know that there are... Yeah, I, I agree. If the, if the human body wasn't so good at healing itself, I mean, we'd all be dead because modern medicine is uh, unfortunately not very effective at helping people. It has to come mostly from the, uh, the person's own body, unfortunately, it seems like. Richard, that is exactly the right way to think about it. We in medicine get so impressed with ourselves, but in actual fact... What we're, and, and what makes me so upset now when I have to go in the hospital for any reason, like one of my relatives, is that we're ignoring the fact that this person is at the lowest ebb. I mean, they're in the hospital because their body is really not functioning normally. And then we're putting all these drugs, we're putting in these feeble attempts to get it functioning normally again. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But it is what, from what I've seen in my clients, if you can put this all back together... The brain is actually designed to be aware of every single thing that it needs to do to make all the deferred repairs. So once you take someone who's sleep deprived, who wasn't able to fix their pancreas or wasn't able to fix their liver or wasn't able to fix their GI tract, the brain is designed to say, well, I know how to fix this. It knows how to fix everything. If you give it enough sleep every single night, it's not going to happen overnight. It takes a long time. And the length of time it needs in sleep to fix things is directly dependent on how long you've been sick. So if it's a 45-year-old person, it's a different framework than it is a five-year-old. So the length of time it takes to fix is longer, but it's still possible. The body knows what to do to make it better. Well, the great thing is hospitals really support us by uh, letting us sleep really well at night and giving us great food. Yes, the, the, that is such a... When I, my, I went in the hospital with my husband and we finally, you know, we've been in the ICU for three days and then we finally get to go to the floor. And I was well known in this. This is my hospital we're in. I was well known already for writing this little note and putting it on the outside and writing in the notes and putting a little sign on the door saying, do not wake this patient from 10 p.m. till 7 a.m. for blood draw, x-rays or bathing. And it took me having my patient, it took me asking my patients, how was your sleep last night? And they would say, well, they took me to x-ray at 3 a.m. How do you expect me to be? And I went, really? And they said, yeah. And then they, I came back and they decided they were going to bathe me at 4 a.m. So I would write these little notes. Well, there was no one there to put that note on when I finally got to the floor with my husband. And this aide comes at 1230 when we finally get to sleep, sticks her head in and says, did you have a bowel movement yesterday? And wakes us both up. I mean, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Well, by the way, when you put those notes, did that work? Or did people it still It did work. There was, a lot of, there was a lot of chattering in the background, you know, because, and what I realized was everything that happens in the hospital is for the doctor's convenience. That many of these behaviors are really rest in Downton Abbey. I mean, that sounds crazy, but if you watch British shows where there's a class struggle and there is still 
Every, all of the humans accept this concept that there are humans that are better, that are higher class than other humans. It was that basis that medicine grew out of, that rich, well-educated, so you had to be rich to be well-educated, so you were in a different class and you went to medical school and all the training that we get still picks up that class struggle and puts it into modern day where I as the physician am more important than the patient. And the patient is in the hospital and they're damn lucky to be in there because I've decided I'm going to have this building and I'm going to let these sick people stay in my building and then I'm going to come by. There's still this retained idea that physicians are somehow a, a better class of human being than other human beings. And then you go in the hospital and you think, wow, this is totally backwards. This is not the way that it should be to actually care for people. That, that was a, that's what happened to me when I started to put those little notes there, is that other people were like, well, why don't we let people sleep in the hospital? That's a weird idea. Why would we get a CAT scan at 3 a.m.? Because I'm going to come around at 6 a.m. and I'm the physician. And if you don't get it done, I'm going to yell at you. I know. Very sad. Very sad how it is. So what's, um, we're, we're just about at the end of time. It's been a really good call, but what, what kind of takeaways do you want to give people and how can they seek you out if they need help? My website is uh, www.drgomanak.com. So D-R-G-O-M-I-N-A-K.com. It's a weird name. Um, I'm the only Gomanak on the whole planet. So if you put in something that sounds kind of like that and write vitamin D after it, you'll get to my site. The protocol that I've worked out is not the complete answer for everyone, but it is the starting piece for everyone. And all you have to do is take D, B50, B12 if you're deficient, and a multivitamin. It's a relatively simple protocol. And it's the starting protocol for basically most diseases. In my view, it is not the answer for cancer, but it is the answer for many, many of the chronic diseases that we have currently. I have a workbook. Um, my, my site itself is dedicated to the why. I'm very interested in the why of this, as you are obviously too, Richard. Why is this? I don't, I don't want somebody to just tell me what to do. I want to know why. So the site is dedicated to the why, the how portion of it. Okay, just I don't care about the why. I just want to know what I do is in the workbook. There's a specific place on the front homepage. It says quick start basics, tells you where to go, what to buy. I, do, I am not in favor of uh, recommending any specific brand because it turns out that the brand of vitamins can change what's in there at their whim. And it turns out we have to re-educate to pay attention to the doses of the vitamins. So there's some basic things you have to follow. So unfortunately... I don't think it's safe to say buy this particular brand. I really make you learn what the doses are of the things that are important in terms of making you sleep better. You can actually sign up for a getting to know you appointment, which is a half an hour to discuss the specifics of what's wrong with you. And you can also elect to work with me for a full year. And if you want to do that, you go to the getting to know you appointment. We talk about your specific issues, and then we put together a plan for you. Very good. Well, Stasha, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. It's been a great call, like I said. Richard, it was really nice getting to know you. I would, I'm would. i going to go to your site and learn a little bit about more about what you're doing because you have some really interesting questions. Excellent.
You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.